You can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell, and this is our Michael Mann Podcast Extra with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles. And uh, joining us tonight is uh, Chris Rogers, who is a, um, I'd say, a fan of the film Miami Vice. Uh, and you'd be right to so say. Uh, hello, Simon. Hello, Keith. Good to be here. Welcome, Chris. Good to have you on board. Thank you. Well, we've got Chris here because um, if you remember from our uh, podcast about Michael Mann, we talked about how uh, we were going to do a Michael Mann podcast with Rob and Clive, which didn't happen uh, due to the fact that they decided to go in a different direction with their podcast. But Chris was also going to be one of the uh, contributors to that podcast. And we thought it'd be a great idea to, to bring him on and talk about a film where um it's a very that divides a lot of people it's there's a lot of people who either love this film or hate this film absolutely absolutely um before we delve into the film though can we just talk a little bit about the tv show yeah reason being uh in preparation for this podcast um i not only revisited the miami vice film uh by michael mann but i did actually revisit a couple of episodes from the television series, um, namely the pilot episode, also known as Brothers Keeper, and a two-part episode called The Golden Triangle. And what surprised me about re-watching these, because obviously I remember Miami Vice slightly from my adolescence and um, you know was very aware of it, but certainly didn't, didn't watch loads of it or see every episode or anything like that. And what actually struck me with with rewatching um, that classic show from 1984 uh, was even though it's dated in terms of, you know, the fashions and the hairstyles and some of the music and, and whatever, um, I actually found on many other levels in terms of production value, storytelling, acting um, and things of that nature, it, it actually stood up quite well even today and I think um, when we look at sort of each every decade like sort of dating back to the 60s you have sort of breakthrough groundbreaking revolutionary television uh, episodic or or TV drama sort of starting with Star Trek back in the 60s I think certainly in the 80s um, Miami Vice would fall into that and I just wondered what your impressions were uh, on that 
Um, it's been a while since I've seen the any of the series, although I did see pretty much every episode. And it's it would be an interesting one to revisit. I think certainly my impression is that I, I'm interested to hear what you say, Keith, about aspects of it having dated. I'm obviously I'm seeing it I'm talking sight unseen in as much as I haven't revisited them, but I would be surprised if some of the visuals have dated as much because. And it kind of depends which episode you're talking about. The ones you cite, I think, are more the, in the earlier series. Certainly, there was a massive change in direction um, where it quite literally got darker from the fourth season. Um, when I remember at the time, it was a very strange shift where it almost became a black and white film in terms of the really ultra-high contrast monochrome palette that they used. So I think that's an interesting point. Um, I think... Although I did watch it religiously, I think I was probably slightly too young to appreciate some of the the points you're talking about in terms of the plot, um, the acting and so on. I watched it, bear in mind this was kind of at the same time as The 18 was out and all that kind of much more populist popcorn stuff. Um, I watched it mostly in vain each week for some kind of exciting shoot, shootout. And actually the fact that it was in vain kind of proves the point because it wasn't that kind of show. And I think... Much as I liked it and much as I stuck with it and kept a number of the episodes for a long time, um, it wasn't that kind of show. It was never that kind of show. And that's why I thought, personally, that those that turned up to the film expecting something similar were kind of kidding themselves because I didn't think it was going to be, I didn't think it was going to be like that and it wasn't 20 years on. No, absolutely. What about you, Simon? Did do you have any memory of Miami Vice? Uh, I remember it being on, and I remember the um, the sort of the opening credits, but uh, I never did get a chance to to watch it. And unfortunately, I did try and watch the pilot of this, and I just couldn't find a copy or find it streaming somewhere. So I had to, you know, I had to give it a miss. But you know, I I know enough about the the characters and um, sort of the situations that they did. I know they even had Phil Collins on it once. They did. Yes. I think, you know, that was part of, and again, that's why I, I go back to this idea of the visuals, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in terms of the film in more detail in a sec. But I think one thing I did respond to very strongly at the time, even though, you know, perhaps my own experience and knowledge and appreciation of film and TV generally were still developing, um, it had such a strong visual sense to it regardless of which period of the, the series is run you're talking about. Uh, and that really, really did stay with me. Um, I mean, again, we probably shouldn't talk too much about it in terms of where we're going with this with the, this broadcast, but it had a very particular style to it, not just this conjunction of architecture and film and fashion, music as well. I mean, not visual, obviously, but that was a massive part of it. Um, but even things like the shot composition and the timings, the editing, Things like that. I think it would be it would be very interesting to you know do a separate side piece on that um, and pick off two or three episodes because they are very strong. Some of them. Um, one of the things I certainly picked up from it, which has been used subsequently in many, many, many series, is it may not have originated, but it certainly popularised the idea of what we've now called a cold open, where you have yeah. a whole pre credit sequence. And even the credits themselves were very carefully paced, um, very much like a film credit where you would get increasing gaps between the screenwriter and then the director's name and all of that. And that I was very conscious of that. And I think that's something that, that it very much sort of blazed the path with. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think I think it was a show, uh, you know, on reflection, looking at it, that was very much ahead of its time and did a lot of things uh, with television drama that, um, you know, we sort of take for granted today. But things like, you know, not having a an epilogue as such, um, you know, having those sort of cold endings that just go to a black screen with executive producer Michael Mann. And, absolutely. Um, I think, and, you know, and that was... That was the sensibility that man picked up on for the film, in my view, because interestingly, uh, and Simon was absolutely right to say that it is, does seem to be a film that divides opinions. Again, I'm probably slightly biased in as much as I loved it from the minute I first saw it and always have done. And to me, it only gets better and better every time I see it. And, but I think one of the things that people didn't get, leaving aside any perceived or expected links to the series, um, was what I think the Radio Times, to pick one at random, but that's a you know a popular source of information for films, still says it's unforgivable for the lack of ending. And I think, sorry, you're missing the point. That is, yeah, the end, you know, no, absolutely. Well, let's 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 move on to the film now. It's interesting how the film, the beginning, just drops us in it, mm. and it absolutely. literally, you know, you're you're there, you're in a nightclub, and you just you meet these guys on the job but you've you've not had anything else up to this point you are literally dropped into their world and they're in the middle of a job now do you think that might be a little bit of a throwback to the tv series that they they starting on another case that then leads and then which is completely dropped for what for the rest of the story i think it's for me it's Difficult to answer that specifically in the sense that, again, my memories of the series are relatively dim now, apart from, you know, half a dozen episodes. Um, I think it's certainly something, as I mentioned earlier, around the TV series, each episode was structured very similarly with this pre-credit sequence, some of which did relate to the, what, what you're about to see, but often, as you rightly say, it didn't. So I think, yes, and I think we'll probably get onto the director's cut, so-called, um, you know, in due course. But I think one of the obvious differences between the director's cut and the theatrical cut is it addresses that. And I say addresses it only in the sense that some people think it's a problem. I don't. Um, by giving you six or seven minutes of backstory as to why they're there. Um, yes. Right. Along with credits. Indeed. Personally, I felt that the theatrical release which again, and it's interesting that people seem to seize on both the beginning, you know, the very last shot and the very first shot as the weakest elements. I think absolutely they're the strongest part of the film because one of my whole points about why I think this film is so good is that it is a complete slice taken out of Crockett and Tubbs' life for the, what, three or four days that it, that it takes place, or a bit longer than that. Um, you don't need to know what happened to them before. You don't need to know what happened to them afterwards. And I think one of the reasons why I think this film is so, I hesitate to use the word profound because that's probably pushing it a little bit, but <laughs> in the context of a relatively popular, you know, contemporary crime thriller, I think it does what everyone talked about 20 years ago when Speed came out. Okay, it's an action film first and foremost, but a huge, amount, a huge deal was made of the fact that in Speed you get no backstory, of Keanu Reeves' character at all. You don't know what happens to him before. You don't know what happens to him afterwards. He hasn't got a, he hasn't got a, you know, a divorced wife. He hasn't got a little puppy, any of that. And that was, that was taken as a big deal at the time. Cinema yeah. didn't, didn't really go in that direction generally. But with the Miami Vice film, it does go in that direction. And I think it works hugely because 
as you say, Simon, you're dropped right into their world at that particular time in that famous line, it's 11.47 o'clock or whatever it is that he says out on the roof. Um, mm-hmm. It's the hand you've been dealt and that's the hand you're going to play for the next two hours. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I think I think one of the reasons, and I think this is the reason uh, some people were perhaps surprised, um, whether it be pleasantly or not, with this film when it came out in in 2006 was um you, you know obviously the title the name Miami Vice comes with a certain amount of baggage because of the popularity of the TV show and i think you know what michael mann did with this in my opinion which was a good thing was he basically essentially reimagined Miami Vice so in other words you, you know it was a complete the the slate was clean and and yes it dealt with it dealt with similar themes um you know you obviously had certain iconography such as you know speed boats and fast cars and sunglasses and suits and and automatic weapons and stuff like that but but it, it did reimagine it and i mean it, it didn't reimagine it to the to the degree that a lot of things have, have done where they've actually sort of changed the gender and ethnicity of, of characters. They kind of kept that the same, but everything else was, 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 you know, a fresh slate and um, a new approach to it. And I think some people were probably because a year or two earlier, they, they, they'd done a spoof of Startsky and Hutch and whatever. I think some people went to the cinema expecting this to be kind of a very winky self-referencing um, story when actually it was it was a very, very serious um, and well-crafted uh, crime thriller. Well, in my opinion, I mean, I, I came out of Collateral and I loved that. And the, the thought that they were going to use the same techniques for this film, I was really up for it. And um, I think, I mean, I've gone back and I watched it again and I'm, I'm still not a big fan of it. I think one of the problems for me is that um, you, apart from the fact that you don't really get to know these guys that very, that well, but you're, I was getting into the story and then suddenly Sonny Crockett goes off on a boat with um, Ling Gong's character called Isabella mm-hmm. and they go off and have like a little romance and stuff. And it it was just like up to this point, it was really tense. It was really about just trying to find out who this leak was and and doing this, you know, trying to do this drugs bus. And then suddenly they go off and have a date and that's like a good 20 minutes or so of the story. and it just it just took me out of it and it took me a while then to get back into the story once they returned to the situation and that was just like you know that for me was just it was horrible because you know i i then sort of i lost my my interest in it really so once we get i mean i had no problems with the ending i thought it was you know it, it kind of it worked but um i think up to that point they kind of had lost me again I think that's really interesting, Simon. I think, I mean, I had a very different reaction and, and at the time. And again, I think it's always helpful to go back to your first memories of these films, particularly if you see them you know, on release. Um, and, you know, we're talking almost 10 years ago now, which is interesting in itself. Scary, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I, I, I use the word interesting. I do mean scary, obviously. Um, yeah. And I think for me, I had a very different reaction for two reasons. Firstly, 
and this is the one that's grown since in all subsequent viewings, which is that I, for me, it didn't do that. It, just in terms of the story, regardless of its connections to the series um, and its history, it, it didn't do that for me. It was, for me, it was it, something that grew organically out of the plot, both in terms of their story, but also in terms of what I think man was trying to look at. I mean, there's a really good quote from him at the time it came out that, he looks at Miami as the northern tip of South America rather than the southern tip of North America. And I thought that was really bang on. And obviously he develops that in terms of the, you know, the overall narco trafficking story. So for me, that scene serves both for the two characters of Isabella and Crockett, um, to advance their story and also to, to, to act as a kind of a, a moment between these two parts of, of, of the two parts of the Americas between the two worlds that they represent. Um, for me, it, it served as a kind of in, in a metaphorical way. But also that first time I saw it, it's a very, very direct and deliberate and knowing quote from the series. There is a two part that comes early on in the series um, called Hit List and Calderon's Demise, where Crockett and Tubbs's first boss gets killed accidentally, as in he's not the target, by an assassin. And they go off to the Bahamas to capture the guy and at the exact moment at the end of the first episode they both take the speedboat over to the Bahamas it's slow-mo it's got music laid over it and it's an absolute quote from from that episode that they're using so that and that's pretty much all he does do um, you know other than the characters and the basic concept so for me it worked on two levels but I'm interested to hear uh, as you say Simon that for you you know it didn't work as well well, it's it because the thing is, you were following the action. You know, these guys were making, you know, they were making moves. They were getting in there, and then suddenly, Sonny Crockett decides to go off on this date. And the the thing is, for the story, is that it follows them for all that time, and you don't know what's going on. Now, sometimes it works that you know you go, oh well, you know, let's see what happens here, and then you're interested in it just because you want to get back to the action. But it just it just knocked me out of it. Okay, I mean, because it does obviously have its payoff at the end, you know, when she realises that he's been that deep undercover, you know, and they've had this relationship, but he's actually a cop and, you know, they have all that stuff at the end. But, but you know, yeah, I take your point um, if it didn't work too well. I mean, so, something that's interesting, I just revisited the uh, audio commentary by Michael Mann on the director's edition of this. And um, what he said is, you know, it's often a misconception. First of all, Miami Vice was actually cr created by Anthony Yurkovich, who, who came from Hill Street Blues and whatever. And uh, Michael Mann was obviously the executive producer and showrunner of the TV and, and had lots of... Um, you know, input into the way the show was going and how it looked and whatever. But um, apparently back in 84, 85 or what, 84, when this um, came out, um, he initially wanted to turn the idea into a uh, feature film back then. But the deal had already been done with the television network to uh, develop it and make it into a television series. So it's quite interesting that, you know, like some 22 years later, he gets his um, wish to actually, you know, take these characters and take this scenario and adapt it into a into a, a feature film for the big screen, which I thought yeah, was quite I think interesting. It's also interesting to see how, you know, as I said earlier with that quote from Man, that the world has changed somewhat. I mean, obviously at the time, Miami Vice was 
absolutely rooted in its period, you know, the 80s and the cocaine boom in America and all the rest of it. Um, and just as an aside, there's a fantastic documentary called Cocaine Cowboys, which is absolutely worth seeing. It is the kind of the real-life Miami Vice, but there's a very obvious knowing point towards Miami Vice because the whole thing is scored by an actually quite incessantly annoying um, Dan Hammer soundtrack. Um, <laughs> But basically, it's the reminiscences of, I think it's two cocaine dealers, um, as opposed to one cop and one cocaine dealer, I think. I may be wrong. It's a while since I've seen it. But it's only about 90 minutes long, and it's just talking heads. It's nothing particularly technically you know, outstanding. But the stories they tell are absolutely extraordinary, and it's absolutely the world that Miami Vice, the series, was based in. And you know, the violence was obviously far, far worse than what you could even hint at in the TV series at the time. Um, and it's really quite horrific, actually, some of it. But it's absolutely worth nailing down because it really does give you a lot of that backstory. But so, yeah, it would have been interesting to see what it would have looked like. I rather suspect. And again, this takes me on to I suspect Simon might not like this, but it takes me on to, you know, one of my reasons why I like it so much. And the feature film is that had it been made in this in the 80s, I think even with man behind it, if you think back to his work, then the feature film work. It was far more stylish and arguably sometimes stylized. Not necessarily a bad thing because, you know, some people like to keep an awful lot of people, myself included, love Manhunter. Um, it would have been a very different film from the one that we're talking about. And not necessarily, I think, a better one. You know, aesthetics, plotting, acting, things have changed hugely in 20 years. And I think the very dark, broody film that we're talking about, even though the seeds of that were clearly there in the series, because it was a far darker series than most people realise. Um, and, you know, you talk about that at the beginning, really, Keith. Um, I think for me, that's why the, the film works so well, because it's so spare. There is absolutely no fat on that screenplay at all. There isn't a wasted image. There's not a wasted line of dialogue. Um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a whole other conversation around what the quotes, realistic quotes, look like in that kind of genre. But insofar as we can guess what it might look like, to me, it looks like my device to film. Now, um, I was reading, um, and uh, there was a bit that was about how Jamie Foxx suggested to Michael Mann that he should go back and, you know, look at Miami Vice and think about doing it as a film, which I think is kind of ironic because from what I heard, the the one person who was a big pain in the ass on that film set was Jamie Foxx. Mm. Yeah, well, he won an Oscar, didn't he? <laughs> so, but yeah, apparently he mentioned it on the rap party of Ali and um, yes, suggested it to Michael Mann. But apparently, yeah, I mean, if, if what you read is true and I've read the same things, you know, between this and um, uh, that conversation, he obviously won an Academy Award for Ray and he suddenly made a lot more demands and wanted private jets and more money and all this sort of thing. And interestingly enough, in the UK, the UK release always had Colin Farrell's name first and then Jamie Foxx, whereas the US advertising for this have always put Jamie Foxx first and Colin Farrell second, which is uh, which I think is interesting. But yeah, I, I've read those stories as well about him uh, him being a, a bit of a prima donna and, and and quite a pain in the ass. But having said that, everything I've heard, um, obviously the, the commentary Michael Mann recorded for the uh, director's edition that he released was, was obviously after the film and he had nothing 
but great things to say about um, working with Jamie Foxx, uh, you know, for, for several times. So who knows? Who knows if those stories are true? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, though, because, I mean, we haven't talked about performances. Maybe this is a good time to start because I think of the two, I was always, and again, I go back to my first memories of it, um, to try and kind of capture how I first felt. But to me, um, Colin Farrell gave by far the best performance there. And I hadn't actually, to be fair, seen a lot of his work at the time. Um, you know, I've seen him in a number of things since. But I still think that's his best work because I, Jamie Foxx never really particularly caught my attention in the series, even though to a degree they have equal time and equal story, but not really because, as Simon was rightly saying, you know, the, the real thrust of it is obviously with, with Crockett and Isabella. But, and maybe that's why, you know, one's attention was on him. But I thought he was terrific in this. I think he's so kind of, it's hard to describe. He's, he's not Don Johnson, clearly, and he was not supposed to be, although you can see a little bit of that in it. But he's, he's intense, but he's laid back. It's a bit like Isabella's description of him when she's talking to, to Louis Tossard's character, you know. He's um he's very professional. He's very calm. He's very controlled. He knows what he wants. Um, and I just think he knows it. I think it's a terrific performance. Yeah, with quite the mullet as well. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I, that never really bothered me to be honest. But I know some people did mention it. Yes, I think it's quite cool actually. But uh, I'm very jealous of Colin Farrell. But there you go. Um, no, I mean, um, no, it, 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 it's. Uh, I agree. I mean, performance-wise, this film. I mean. Aside from the main characters, okay, you've you've got some wonderful, um, again, you know, Michael Mann being liking the attention to detail that he does, some wonderful supporting actors, you know, in the likes of sort of John Ortiz, Kieran Hines, uh, Eddie Marsden, um, you, you know, and, and, and people of that nature in this film, John Hawks, you know, those, those sort of guys. But um, what I noticed, one of the things they, they sort of, Again, um, I think they probably did it for story reasons because essentially this story involved Sonny Crockett stroke Burnett um, having, you know, uh, a love affair um, with with uh, Gong Lee's character Isabella in this. Um, you know, in the in the TV ep- in the in the pilot episode, the the TV series, they very much set up, you know, this backstory with Crockett and he's, you know. Uh, bitterly divorced and mm-hmm. you know he's got a kid and all this sort of stuff and he kind of has a relationship with the character Gina um, in, in this whereas I've noticed they bought uh, uh, the, the relationship within the police department between uh, Tubbs and um, Trudy who is played by a pre-money penny uh, Naomi Harris mm-hmm. um, in this film and they sort of they sort of change the dynamics around slightly there. And I think that's possibly to sort of fit in with this, um, with this alternative storyline they had with, with Crockett falling in love uh, when he shouldn't. I just want to say about um, the, 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 the team, because I think that's one of the things that they, they really did waste was you had uh, this team around them, yet you hardly saw any of them. And they didn't really participate apart from the Trudy character. And you just, it was just really, I thought it was a waste because there were some really good actors there and they didn't really get to do anything apart from stand around in the background and maybe say a line or two. No, I think that's, I think that's fair. I mean, I think. I agree with that. Yeah. It, it's a difficult one because as we both, as we've all acknowledged, you know, it was the, the weight of the, 
plot and the weight of the characterization was was different in this. Um, obviously, you only had a two-hour feature to play with rather than you know X episodes of a TV series. Um, and also, as we said earlier, the demands of of network TV are very different from what you can do in a film. So I think that doesn't help either. Um, I think I think Simon's right though. I think it's it's one of the, the one of the few areas where the director's cut improves on the theatrical cut. And, yes. And I don't think it does as an overall piece comparison, you know, like for like. But the fact that Tubbs and Trudy do get more time together, as it were, literally. They do, yeah. And, and that we get more time with them as well. It does help because there is, if you exclude the part that Simon didn't like that took him out of the film, um, it does at least balance up those two relationships. And I think that that helps. And it perhaps might also address, and it's interesting actually now I've just said it, it just occurred to me, might also have addressed my own reactions to, or if you like, lack of reaction to Jamie Foxx's character and presence in the film. So I think that's a fair point. Uh, yeah. Having said that, I was looking at something online last night in preparation for this. And it was doing, they were contemporary reviews when it came out, online reviews. And they all made the same point, which is that you couldn't really have the kinds of, you know, it, it, the convention in any cop TV series up and certainly up until and beyond Money Vice was you had your two prime leads and then you had your co-leads that, you know, sit in the background and do the joking around and the larky bits and all of that. And you couldn't do that in a film, I don't think, at least not the sort of film that man wanted to make. But I, I do take the point, Simon, and I, I certainly wouldn't disagree with you there. Yeah, I mean, Switek and Zito are very underused in the film. Even in the extended cut, they don't get a lot more, nor, do, nor does Gina particularly. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and obviously, um, Lieutenant Castile's got, you know, he, he sort of has a bit to do in this film, but again, not, not massively. No, and so. I think that's, a, you know, that's another point. We've forgotten about that entirely, actually, in fairness, because... People forget that Edward James Olmos wasn't in the original series of Miami Vice. He was only brought in at the end of the first season. Um, <clears throat> when, as I say, the first, their first boss, played by Gregory Sierra, um, was killed. That and was Captain Lou Rodriguez, wasn't it? Yeah, Captain Lou Rodriguez. Yeah, and, and he, he gets replaced, doesn't he? Sort of he halfway does. through and, or something. And that kind of transformed the series in many ways because you've got this highly unusual thing where the boss, instead of being the grumpy guy that, you know, sends them out on their job every week, as it would have been 10 years before in 1975, um, becomes absolutely an integral part of, of the series to the extent that he gets a couple of episodes pretty much to himself. I mean, um, one of the things if you know, I, I, as I said, I've just rewatched it and I, I, you know, I really like, I mean, I liked the film at the time when it came out and, um, Obviously, I went ahead and bought the uh, extended edition and et cetera when that came out. Um, and a big fan of it. The only thing, you know, if I had to, if I had to criticize it at all, I would say, I mean, you know, obviously, Michael Mann being very serious and taking everything very seriously. Um, you know, the film does, if anything, suffer from being quite macho, <laughs> you know, in a lot of its lines and its delivery. Um, you, you That's know, interesting. Almost, why? Why do you say that? Have you got? Have you? Have you got some evidence? No, I mean, I just, just some of it, just some of it, just kind of made me chuckle to myself while I was watching it, and it was just some of the stuff, you know, where they go and visit um, 
uh, John Ortiz's character, Jose Yero. Um, that, that initial uh, meeting in the basement nightclub, you're thinking. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It just, it just, it. You know, as I said, I don't think it's bad in any way. Uh, all I'm saying is, it it did make me chuckle slightly as to you know how 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 sort of macho it was. But then you know it's serious, so you know it should be. So and I'm, I, and I'm not, I think you would. Some people might argue that, as was argued and repeatedly argued, although I slightly disagree, or more so now than I used to, even. Vaguely equivalent scene in Heat when um, Vincent Hanna starts tries to scare the um, the guy in the chop shop. Um, you know, you're supposed to you're supposed to get that he is in character as a slightly over the top, out of control cop. Um, and you know, although they've wound that down, thankfully, um, for Miami Vice, you could make the argument that that performance was a performance um you know yero is a fairly unsophisticated guy um and he responds to that kind of stuff he thinks he's a bit of a hard man himself i mean he clearly is but in a different way um yeah so i, I think i think that's an interesting point i mean in, interesting though conversely i think one of the things i like about the film again is which is kind of the flip side of that and i know you're only picking out on you know a couple of points but it is you know, pretty much everything from the dialogue, but certainly to the gunplay and the shootouts, it's it's so it's so minimalistic and kind of no nonsense. It's quite remarkable. It's almost if you can underplay a massive gunfight, Michael Mann underplays the massive gunfight at the end of Miami Vice because brilliant though the heat shootout is, and you know it's still absolutely one everyone measures it against. Um, even that as he was as a film, is very slightly operatic and slightly, not over the top, but it's almost larger than life, although it's still quite controlled. But in Miami Vice, you know, it's, I've always said it's the kind of inversion of the heat gun fight because it takes place at night. Um, yeah. The whole structure of it is different. Um, and it is so kind of underdone that it's quite scary, actually. Well, it's, it, it's as scary as the heat one, but in a different way. Yeah, it's spot on, actually, because, again, um, you, know, you know, I'm very jealous of the actors in this because this must have been great. Um, they, they underwent, uh, you know, like three months training and, and choreographed that scene. You know, those apparently that shootout is done in real... Um, you know, tactical moves and, you, you know, all the consultants. I mean, again, we, we talked about this on the Miami, uh, on the Michael Mann podcast, but, you know, um, you, you know, having friends and, and colleagues and whatever in the police force, you know, everything that he does like that is absolutely 100% realistic. And the fact that they made it look, um, you, you know, matter of fact and seamless was because of the amount of preparation on that. I mean, I went, I, I recently went with Mike Tack out to um, Denver for a film festival. Again, we talked briefly about that on another podcast. But while we were out there, we actually did go to a gun range because he had a friend that, that, that worked at a gun range out there. And we shot um, everything from uh, automatic pistols through to, you know, semi-automatic uh, rifles and whatever. And I have to say, you know, the first time you've got a live gun in your hand, that is scary as hell. I was I was physically shaking. You know, I was quite freaked out by it as a as an English dude, you know, that's not around this stuff all the time. And and again, you know, um they they had that sort of intense training and 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 you're right, that that scene at the end, even though it seems somewhat underplayed, um, you, you know, it was actually very, very uh, meticulously thought through, but I, I take your point. They were going more for 
brute realism than they were the sort of more, if you like, operatic, stylized uh, approach that they took to a certain extent in Heat. You know. Yeah, and I think so, also yeah. in Heat they were trying to make a story point, which is that the criminals were by far more the more competent than the majority of the street police. And, you know, it was supposed to be making a point. It was supposed to be making the point that Neil McCordy's crew was tougher than anybody else. In Miami Vice, you know, it's a film about, it's a film about mirrors and about opposites and about surfaces. And it's about, you know, the final point where to use, and I think this is probably one example actually of your slightly, your point around slightly over macho lines, because I always slightly cringe at this one, but when Jamie Foxx had to say that line about fabricated realities collapsing, it's a little bit cringy, but actually that's the point of that, that end scene. Um, well, so yeah. it, it's about evening out the, the scores slightly, but also evening out the degrees of competence and showing that actually they're both quite similarly matched because, okay, the good guys win in the end, but you know, it's just done in a different way for a different reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, that whole theme about being so deep undercover, um, you know, that you start the, the, the sort of lines between who you are and who you're portraying get blurred. And, you, you know, the fact that you have to, you, you know, know that inside out so you don't get caught out. It's like I, I think they, they, they described it um, in something I read once, which I thought was really good. They were saying it was like, um, you know, when you're an actor, uh, you know, and, and you and you mess up a performance, you get a second or a third take or however many takes until you get it wrong. During this performance, if you get it wrong, you end up with a bullet in the head. Yeah, <laughs> you as, you see, as you see very spectacularly in that amazing scene where the hidden snipers shoot up the car with the FBI informers in it. Which, oh, wow, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the kind of scariest things in the film, actually. But you're right, um, I think, and I think that's a really good point well made because... Again, to me, and full disclosure here, I've I've written and blogged on this film before relatively recently on a, a friend's site that we know and love. Um, and, you know, I said there that the whole point is, and you were alluding to this earlier, Keith, that in a Michael Mann film generally, but particularly in this one, and again, it goes to this kind of underplaying nature to it, um, actions are actions and they're not descriptions of actions you don't get much as we love on sure die hard um and i love john mctiernan as an action director particularly at that period when he was working if you watch die hard again it's very much of its time there's a lot of fetishizing of the guns which is kind of funny and actually it was making a point because mctiernan is actually a bit of a pacifist but anyway um if you watch those scenes in die hard there's a lot of flourishing of guns and cocking of guns ostentatiously and all of that kind of stuff um, yeah. that, that fits very well with the with the, the tone of the film. You don't get that in Miami Vice at all. Um, the guns are just tools. They just happen to be guns. They could just as easily be, you know, power drills or whatever it might be. Um, and it's interesting. It's one of the few things that people did pick up on uh, when it was released, that, you know, there is a lot of use of things in the film. They are, you know, driving, as you said at the beginning, they're driving speedboats, they're flying planes, they're using comms gear and guns and so on but you're kind of almost not conscious of that because it's not done in a kind of flashy oh look i'm now driving a car i'm now flying a plane kind of way yeah no absolutely i mean that thing in die hard um you know that had all sort of come out of the 
whole lethal weapon, you know, mm, Beretta nine millimeter, yeah, uh, you, you know, trend. I mean, even even Bond was using one of those in uh, License to Kill, you know, at the beginning and stuff like that. So yeah, it was kind of a about the uh, about the hardware. Whereas this, yeah, stripped that away, and it was much more character and plot. And those devices were just a matter of fact. I mean, if anything, the only the stuff that's nowadays distracting is actually the technology simply because it's it you know it's it's very it looks dated from the when you look at the cell phones and stuff that they were using and the computers but uh the guns like you said they're barely they play a massive part in this but they are they aren't too focused they're they're sort of just there as tools absolutely it's a good good term i like that but then um the bit when they you know go off to cuba in the speedboat and he's like oh you know we can drive really fast in this as yeah true but then know, there, that... there are there are moments when it, they call to the the actual equipment and the vehicles they're using they do but i think again as we said before i think personally i think that scene is there for a particular reason you know as the as the line to the moby song says you know one and, and it's a very hypnotic kind of presentation of that song and that moment about one of these mornings it won't be very long they'll look for me and i'll be gone and again, it, it's a moment that that man's trying to make a share that they've got, and they probably both know. I don't think they're kidding each other. I think they realise that. Uh, I think that's one of the lines in the film, isn't it? I think they both say this isn't going to last, and they they get that. Um, mm-hmm. Which is why I think the ending is is more powerful than most people expect. Well, what about the uh, the song that uh, opens the film with um, the numb mm. by? Um... Oh, uh, Lincoln Park. Indeed, and Jay Z. And they're talking about fast cars and girls and guns. They are, and I think that for me, I think that's. I mean, I think artistically, it's, it's a brilliant open to the film. Um, but I think if you think back to this, the context in which that's used, you've got the nightclub scene, as you said, um, where they're trying to turn over the Neptune guy, the pimp. At least he's at least a pimp, he maybe more. Um, it's it's you could say i mean i hadn't really thought about it until you said it but actually thinking about it that's the kind of world that he's in if you think of that scene you know with the guys pulling up in those crazy sort of white range rovers with the swizzy wheels um and you know the very glam looking women and all the rest of it um it's kind of a bit of a nod to that kind of 80s version of criminality where it's all about the bling it's all about the flash so i think if one was going to take that line, I would say that's probably what he was aiming at. Now, why uh, why does this team need all the sort of fast cars and fast boats and stuff? Because they are very well equipped. I mean, you see them driving around in Ferraris and, you know, you don't ever see them not in a, a flash vehicle. Well, the original intention, of course, in the series, and they did make a huge deal out of it. Well, I say the coverage, the press coverage made a huge deal out of it. I think it'd be interesting to get Keith's view if you just watched the pilot. But it's the original idea of it was that this was all confiscated equipment and they were using it to maintain their cover. And obviously exactly. there's, a t- there's a tie in there with the with the film because uh, there's lots of lines of dialogue there about, you know, again, the fabricated identities, the layers of false IDs. Which obviously get well, they get blown to a degree. At least Yero blows them. It's just that nobody actually believes him, which is kind of ironic, of course. Um, you know, he may be the daft guy, but actually, he's the one guy that sees through them all. Um, yeah. And what does he get? He gets scattered all over the walls of a of a container. Um, 
by but, a yeah. grenade launcher. Yes, Indeed, nice. beautifully. It had me cheering in the cinema, I have to say. Because, <laughs> going back to our bit about the acting again, I mean, you mentioned it, Keith, but John Ortiz's role, that's why I was so annoyed that he was so criminally underused in Black Hat. I mean, apart from the fact he's almost unrecognisable in Black Hat. But he did such a fantastic performance in that. Um, it was only years later I realised that he is the unfortunate guy who gets wasted at the beginning of Carlito's way um, in the scene in the pool hall, for those of you that have seen the film. Oh, right, yes. Ah, uh, right. He's the, one who, he's the one who is ill-advisedly advised to reach into the cooler at the bottom to get the beer can out. Um, uh, that's, uh, that's John Ortiz. Uh, I would rec- uh, recommend to you guys to watch Luck, which uh, has John Ortiz uh, as one of the leads in it. He's really good in it. I mean, it's a shame that the series only went for uh, one series because of the amount of um, the horses that got killed in the filming of it that uh, they couldn't continue. But um, it was a really good series. Well, I managed to pick up the box set of that uh for 199 in cex so i'm i've got it in my massive pile of things to watch but uh yeah i look forward to that (laughs) i mean getting back to simon's point i mean i I was sort of going a bit away there but yeah the original justification for all that gear was that it was all confiscated gear and it was necessary to maintain their cover you don't get that at all in the film i accept that entirely And, and interestingly you could argue again it goes back to that first scene it doesn't actually matter because they're not dealing with coke dealers and coke. Well, they are dealing with coke dealers and coke smugglers, but actually, primarily, they're dealing with arms runners and neo Nazis and all the rest of it. So, you know, you don't really get that. So, I think actually that's a really interesting point. You know, you do have that scene of, of I think it's Crockett driving the car with the little flick gear control and all of that stuff. Um, yeah, very that is cool. a, it is very cool. And it is their little moment of, of that, you know. Um, it's the one little wink, if there is one, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, and I think there, I think that's well put. I think there are, you know, little winks within the film. But I mean, he always made it clear he didn't want to make, as you said earlier, a twenty years on a film version of what the TV series was. And personally, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I think it was the right call. Well, well, one of the smart moves I think he made as well, although some people have criticised it for this, but the fact that they never had sort of reorchestrated versions of the theme or Crockett's theme or any of those Jan Hammer songs that uh, that sort of revolutionized the the original series um they kind of you know went with with a a more subtle score by John Murphy and kind of moved away from um fr- from that which I which I think worked for it I mean while we're on the subject of music uh I'm interested in your thought on obviously in the original pilot episode, um, you know, it's very famous for having Phil Collins in the air tonight, uh, playing over the closing part of scenes in it. And obviously non-point, yeah, non-point did a version of this, which is different on the theatrical version it's used for the end credits, but in the in the director's edition, it's actually used in the sh- in the shootout scene to replace some of the score and i just wondered um whether you think that's an improvement or or not or what your thoughts are on that obviously that's a big wink back to the series in many respects it is and I, again i was reading this thing last night which suggested that the director's cut version with having it on that over that shootout was a kind of and again as an aside again it's probably not useful to use the term director's cut, which is why the, the version that I've got when I was I got it in America, I just happened to be there. Don't worry, I didn't go there specially. I'm not that much of a fan. <laughs> um, 
it's called the unrated cut because it was, which is quite an interesting find. Um, I think it was probably a nod. It would have been a nod too far if it had reached the theatrical version. Um, when I watched it, I think it destroyed that gunfight because the whole point was, as with the gunfight in Heat, and one of the points that no one seems to mention about the gunfight in Heat is it's a nine-minute sequence, that whole robbery sequence, from the first moment where they walk in the bank to when the, first, the last shot gets fired. That's a huge, long sequence. And about half of it is the bank robbery and the lead-up to the gunfight. All of that is scored by the Elliot Goldenfield score. At the very moment that Val Kilmer shoots the first round, the score stops and the rest of it is just silent. It's just the sound effect. He does, yeah, the, no. same, he well, does the same thing Does the same thing in Miami Vice. And interestingly, I'm making too many aside, sorry, but interestingly, in relation to the heat scene, uh, Peter Yates does the exact same thing in Bullet. If you watch the car chase in Bullet, it's about the same length. He does exactly the same thing. The prowling around the streets is all scored. At the very moment where Stephen Queen pulled the accelerator, the score stops and all you get is the um, sound effects. And I've always wanted to ask Michael Mann if he was influenced by that. But taking it back to your question, I think it, it ruins the gunfight completely. It was much better left as a very subtle nod for those that stay behind to watch the credits. Um, and it, it fits much better there. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen the uh, extended cut, but. Um... It does sound like a, a rather bad idea because uh, the the gunfight uh, works rather well, just being the the sound of the gunfire and less so about sort of you know music playing on top. I mean, it kind of reminds me a bit of um, that see, that shootout in uh, Face Off when the kids got the headphones on and listening to um, what was it it's Once Upon a Star or. Uh, over the rainbow right and so you know but it's that it's that sort of level of art, um, artificiality that is put on top which sometimes a gunfight doesn't need i think more widely the the use of music i mean, I, I mentioned it very briefly earlier i think works incredibly well i mean there's a couple of dozen maybe not quite that many but um you know found tracks if you like existing tracks that are built into the score some of them you know part of the action as in the nightclub scenes where actually there are two or three different songs that you hear there including Cinnamon and, and so on um, you've got the Moby song with the Patti of the Bell lyrics which I know Simon again apologies to come back to this scene yet again um, <laughs> because I think both in and of itself because I mean that is one it's a shame there's no proper um, the soundtrack I, I could have got the soundtrack CD when I was in France and I wish I had it done for a couple of quid um, it's one of those slightly contested tracks because the don't get the version that's in the film on the CD. And there isn't that it's not available anywhere other than people that rip it from the DVD and put it on, on you know, YouTube. But I think personally, I think it's a gorgeous song and it, it so fits that kind of dreamy atmosphere of that particular sequence. The other kind of third point that I thought was great on the music was um, the use of Mogwai track at the end um, in that famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, uh, ending or non-ending, again, depending on your point of view, um, where he said goodbye to Isabella, you know, it's all ended badly, she's gone off, and he goes back to the hospital to see how his mate is and how his mate's girlfriend is, and you've got that fantastic Mogwai track um, building up at the end, and I just think that's incredibly powerful. It's really, really well done. Yeah. I have to say, I wish they didn't use the track Cinnamon because I'd seen that previously in the Thomas Crown yeah, absolutely. Uh, Affair remake, 
And um, I have to say, they used it better in that film than they did in this one. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that scene is a really good example. I mean, a whole nother podcast, of course, but a, whole, a really, really good example of how, um, you know, music can be used in a very particular way to underscore a particular scene. I completely agree with you. I think that was, when I first saw that, I thought that was a brilliant use of that, of that track in a brilliant um, um, sequence. In actually a not half bad remake, if you accept the principle that almost every remake is is almost a complete waste of time. Nevertheless, it's actually a lot better than most people expected. Uh, and interestingly, it's also a John McTiernan film again. There you go. Back to yes. John McTiernan. I love yeah. that. Um, <laughs> now, the, the other thing I think we should mention as well um, on Miami Vice before we sort of close on this or whatever is um, I want to talk a little bit about the photography in this film because... Mm, this okay. this is this is where um following the sort of success he'd had in collateral with su- using some of the digital formats um and using obviously the same director of photography this was um where y- y- you know uh digital was extensively used in this film and i've heard various uh opinions on whether it they liked the photography or not and i just wonder what you guys thought about that yeah, just from my my sort of uh, cinematographer's eye, uh, I really loved it. I mean, uh, I wish they used lights a bit more in some places. I mean, that shot where uh, Sonny Crockett is um, turns up at the police station and you've got the lightning in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's wonderful that they caught that. I mean, there's some great instances where they, they catch weather happening in the background Absolutely. and it's totally natural. Um but you just sometimes wish it was a bit more light on it. You can, in those dark shots, you can really see the digital noise, which I'm not, I, I, you know, seeming how clean the rest of the film looks at looks like when you when you see those really dark scenes where they're just using the street lights as lighting and you're getting all that digital noise, it does kind of knock you out of it a bit for me. Um, and it's kind of like personally as a filmmaker using digital cameras, I try and avoid situations where I have to pump up the, um, the ISO to get it so high that you start seeing you, the noise on, on screen. Um, but I mean, it, it looks, I mean, the cinematography in it is, is really good. And, um, you know, from the daylight scenes to the, the nighttime scenes all really work very well, apart from a few occasions where they've, you know, obviously wanted to capture that the background weather, and so you know, pumped up the ISO to get, to capture that. Yeah, I'd agree with that, and I I think that I mean, for me, I didn't like Collateral as a film, but I think when I did some research for another piece I wrote on man's work, uh, I listened to the um, commentary on that, and that was really helpful because for a non-professional to to hear about what he achieved on that, particularly with things like those those final nighttime shots where he was able to shoot, you know, right through the, the block, blocks, the office block, lit by their own lighting, and also to see what was happening behind, you know, a couple of miles out into the, the, the sky it was great. And I think I think Simon, you're absolutely right. I like I like the tonality that was used in this film. I like the representation of weather. I think you're absolutely right. And again, there's you know two or three shots. The the opening scene when they're out on the roof of the nightclub um, with this kind of incredibly bruised sort of sky behind them. I think that's great. Um, 
some of the artificial lighting that's used on the freeway as a sort of a sickly sort of orangey greeny um tone to it um and then you get this kind of vivid blue under the um the bridge at the end when they're trying to make the run on the speedboats at sort of the slowest possible speed to give them the most amount of time to get there um, yeah, which is really there by the way that's not um that's actually yeah how that's lit. It, yeah. it's like the famous tunnel in la with um the green lighting through it that you see in every single film from terminator to that's right. Um, yeah, it is. It actually looks like that. They didn't even have to bother with the lighting. Um, and I think one small kind of really, really quite intimate moment I think I'd like to draw attention to here just while we're talking about this is that moment, which to me is the pivot. It's the whole pivot of the film and it's the whole pivot, certainly, of the love story between Isabella and, and Crockett is when they have that fantastic meeting with um, uh, Archangel Montoya in the SUVs. And just as they're walking away, Crockett looks back and he sees Isabella looking out at him and all you've got is this little orange glow of light from inside the SUV and just as he looks back, she looks at him and she powers the window up and the car drives off. And, yeah. it, and it's brilliant. It's just about, again, that kind of on that on that edge, on that border between between light and dark and between good and bad and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I think it, it, it's a really terrific little shot. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I sort of... You know, I find it quite interesting because obviously there are a few shots. I mean, obviously they got lucky with the weather to, well, depending on the point of view, in they had lots of hurricanes and stuff, which obviously A, hindered the production, but B, gave them some of these wonderful skylines and mm, lightning absolutely. bank cracks and stuff like that. But I mean, so, some of the shots, uh, you know, like that rooftop one and the one where Crockett's go into the, the police uh, area and stuff, um, does look a bit sort of grainy or, or digital noise in, in this particular instance, which which is a bit distracting in places. But um, I think uh, I think generally it looks good. I mean, Michael Mann said one of the things he liked about it with filming at night, and I think this is what you were alluding to on the collateral stuff as well, is the fact that it gives him a much greater depth of field, um, meaning he can have you know things in focus quite up close to the lens as well as being able to pick out lights in windows and stuff off in the distance. But it was interesting because one of the things he said in the commentary was how it's a different, it's a completely inverse set of challenges. Because when you're lighting with film, you have to make sure you've lit enough so that the blacks stay true and, uh, you know, don't, don't, um, don't get crushed too much and things of that nature whereas he said you know when you're lighting digitally you just have to make sure that the bright colors are not striping and overexposed so he said it's it's kind of a it's an opposite mentality in one's mind that, that with the challenge with doing that uh compared to shooting on film and obviously you know this this guy's done both to to good results each way I have to say that I, I, I quite like the photography in this and in uh, Collateral, but I didn't like the photography that they used in uh, Gangster Number no. 1. I think then they uh, you mean public they, they pushed it. Public Enemies. Oh, yeah. sorry, Public Enemies. Yeah. Sorry, Public Enemies. It was, um, it was horrible to look at. All the interior scenes were just looked really horrible in comparison to the exterior scenes, which looked beautiful and crisp. Um yeah, it was. Um, I think it, it it got to a point where he was going so much for it to be natural lighting that it 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 got really the interiors were really murky and not very things weren't that sort of defined and clear. Where 
if he had put lights in there, they would have helped. Mm, that's interesting because he went back to Dante Spinotti for that one, whereas obviously in Miami Vice, it was, um, what was it, uh, Dion somebody, Dion Beebe. So, uh, and same for Collateral. So, mm, interesting. Well, you're dealing with somebody that um, is more averse doing film, film than yeah, digital. Definitely. And as you say, with digital, it's a different um, it's a different way of working than film was. Yeah. Because film, you had to um, you had to sort of make sure that you know all parts of the frame uh, was you know exposed, being, uh, exposed. Yeah. Thank you. Could be exposed. You know, you had to rely on your light meter. You couldn't see what the end result was through the camera. You would have to wait until. So it's a it's a different uh, way of working. Yeah, hence why Manhunter looks so great. <laughs> so yeah, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast. It is. <laughs> that, uh, okay, cool. Um, so any any sort of final final comments anyone wants to make on this before? Just just to say that I think personally, again, I I've always liked the film. I think it was terrific at the time. I think it's actually outstanding now. I think it's depending on how you quite want a genre place it. You know, I suggested earlier contemporary crime thriller, which is about the best I can do. Um, I think it's outstanding. I think it's easily one of the best films of its type in the last 20, 30 years. Um, it, it's just terrific. I think that's why it was such a disappointment that, you know, his subsequent stuff has not reached that level. Um, I know, you know, a lot of people reckon Heat is probably one of his best, and I still like it a lot. Uh, and the two make really interesting comparisons. But... For me, Miami Vice is the best. It's it's just utterly real. It's very present. It's just so subdued, but you know, electrifying as well. Yeah. Well, interesting that it's also a film that stands alone, meaning it is a franchise title. You know, it's one of uh, Universal's, um, you know, old franchise titles that they always want to try and revisit or reimagine or whatever but in this case you know even though the film did financially well um you know i'm guessing 11 or nine years on or whatever we are now you know there's no signs of a miami vice 2 and i actually think that's probably a good thing because this is a great movie in its own right and uh should probably live as, as a one-off i don't know would you like to see a sequel anyone no, I don't. I, I don't think you can. I was listening no. to um, I was listening to a broadcast last night of China Mieville talking about the City in the City, which is one of my favourite books. And he said someone asked him exactly that, and he basically said no. He said because you wouldn't like it anyway, and I didn't really write it with that in mind. And he made a really good point. He said that too many properties are ruined by giving people more of what they think they want. And actually, oh, definitely. And definitely. I think that's completely right. It's a double-edged sword often because often fans want more, but obviously the more you do something, the more you're diluting it and therefore, you know, sometimes taking away from what was great about it. So, uh, yeah, that, that is a, a very good point. Certainly, but I, I will uh, put this forward for doing a sequel of Miami, Miami Vice is that they are characters who are still going to be in Miami Vice, still part of the police force. And so there are other cases and, you know, other bad guys out there to take down. So to make a sequel from this, it wouldn't be such a bad thing. It wouldn't actually dilute uh, what uh, the, this original film was like. 
because it would just be another case, another adventure, in inverted commas, you know, of of these two characters. Like an episodic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, because at the end of the day, these two characters, they haven't given up, they haven't quit, or they haven't, you know, run off to be bad guys or anything. They, you know, they're still going to be out there doing the job. So see another one of those cases would could work really well. But um, I think if you do make a sequel now or a reboot or whatever, it is certainly be uh, very different from from the film. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah cool. cool. Well, I mean, I often say when we're recording these podcasts, when we're doing certain directors, there's other films and projects I want to talk about. And I say, oh, you know, that's a whole nother podcast. So uh, thank, thank <laughs> you in this case for letting us have a whole nother podcast. It's been, it's been great to talk about this film and uh, focus on its origins and uh, analyze it somewhat. So uh, thank you for that. I had a lot of fun. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Yes, thank you, Chris, for joining us. Now, we, we're going to finish in our sort of normal manner where we let people know how they can find our work. So, Chris, um, is there a, a website or, um, or do you have Facebook or Twitter where people can find out about your work? I, I don't tweet and I try and keep Facebook personal, although I do plug my own stuff on there from time to time. But, yes, uh, I write for a number of outlets, but I also write on my own website, which is www chrismrogers.net and you will find quite a lot of film analysis on there um my main thing is architecture but and there's also some quite interesting crossovers between the two but um I, i've done quite a lot of film writing on that site as well so um, by all means head over and have a look yeah very interesting Thanks, article on spectre uh, the latest uh, james bond adventure on there which uh, i enjoyed reading immensely so that uh, is definitely another podcast, but thank you. It is indeed. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, you can you can find me by going to uh, YouTube and putting in British Isles, spelled E-Y-L-E-S, and you'll see on there uh, short films that I've made that you can indeed view and share and comment on or whatever. And you can find my work at independentrunnings.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just go to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. Uh, also, we're still looking for uh, film suggestions for our New Year's Eve podcast. So um, we're looking for films we haven't talked about from the previous directors we've spoken to about this series. So, you know, you could pick a Michael Mann film that we haven't spoken about. You could talk about Suggest Thief. Or uh, or last Mohicans. I may I may just go away and do that now. Actually, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and are they just just to be clear on this? Are they uh, picking mm -hmm. a heaven and a hell for us each to talk about? Ah, well, that's the surprise. Well, we <laughs> we decide if it's if it's heaven or hell. Oh, okay, it's just that all they have to do is suggest a film we haven't spoke talked about. And it's up to us to, to to give them our opinion of it. Fair enough. And they'll get a mention. And I'll tell you what, they could also have a free copy of Freefall on DVD because no one ever claimed that. <laughs> so so any, anyone who suggests that we use uh, will get a free copy of Freefall on DVD. <laughs> Let no one say that Santa hasn't been generous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that's a good idea. I think uh, I have some films uh, that uh, I, I'd like to, uh, you know, 
to part with. So <laughs> we might uh, give you a, a a film, a bit of surprise. You never know. It might be good. It might be bad. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. But thank you again for joining us and look out for our next podcast coming out next week.